thank the Lord for that worship this morning in song, and thank the Lord for the servants who give of their gifts and talent to lead us, to give us the ability to express ourselves so well musically. Please take your Bibles this morning to John chapter 4 as we continue in our series through John 3 and 4. John chapter 4 this morning, verses 27 through 38. John 4, 27 through 38, let's read it together. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. And meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. You may be seated. Children, you can be dismissed to Children's Church. Well, as we continue in this series, I want to give a little bit of a summary of where we've been, because we keep, we keep jumping into sections of this narrative, this episode of Jesus and the Samaritan woman, and so I want to remind us where we've been so that we can continue then uh, adequately on with context. So last week we saw that Christ had revealed some things that really would be shocking to both a Jewish and a Samaritan audience and revolutionary information. First of all, that God is seeking true worshipers. This is what God the Father is after, true worshipers. And they aren't exclusively Jewish or Samaritan. Secondly, true worship takes place in spirit. That is the part of us that God has has given uh, that differentiates, uh, differentiates us from the rest of creation. That part of us that's able to relate to God, to commune and fellowship with God. So this true worship must be in spirit because God is spirit. And it also must be in truth, according to the revelation of God in His Word and in Christ. And then thirdly, true worship, Jesus taught, isn't limited to a physical place or a location. It's not to happen solely in a city, a certain city, or in a temple, on a mountain, or as we consider our day, in a, in a church building. Worship of God now takes place in the temple who is Christ, where sinners are able to commune with God 
Because Christ is the Messiah who reconciles God and man, and their worship, true worship, takes place. So many earth-shattering events as we consider this radical person and the radical movement that he's ushering into the world, all kinds of fulfillment of Old Testament law and prophecies, the inauguration of the kingdom of heaven, the establishment of the new covenant, and the people who belong to it. And so as we continue in this account, we see Jesus calling all kinds of people into his kingdom, transforming them from children of darkness into children of light, from idolaters to true worshipers of the true God. And so the seeking and the saving of the lost, which Jesus came to do, and that which he's doing here with this Samaritan woman, he's going to liken or or compare to a harvest, the gathering in of a ripe crop. Now we'll see in our text Jesus both showing and explaining the characteristics of this harvest. And as I look at the text, I see at least five of them, and I want to go through those with you today. Five characteristics of the harvest. What is the nature of this harvest that Jesus is both on mission in and commissioning his disciples in? So first of all, it is a global harvest. And I I don't want to insult your intelligence, but We've made this point before, both Josh and I, as we've walked through this text, we've made this point that the harvest that Jesus is talking about, the harvest of souls into the kingdom of heaven, is a global harvest. It's not limited to one particular people group, one nation, one religious persuasion, etc. And his disciples are still learning that lesson because we're still in this text where Jesus is teaching that lesson, and so we'll continue to look at it. It is a global harvest harvest. Jesus is the Savior for the whole world. We ended last week with Jesus telling the woman explicitly that he is this Messiah. He is the one who was to come from God to save sinners. The message of salvation for anyone in the world who will believe continues. And the point is still being made in the text that the good news of the Savior goes beyond the woman now to the Samaritan people in this town. Let's read verses 27 through 30 again and focus in on what's being taught there. Just then his disciples came back. Remember, Jesus is speaking to this woman at the well. He goes through this uh, radical, what would have been radical and new teaching about worship, about the Father, about how one can have this living water that wells up into eternal life. Just then, after he announces that he is the Messiah, his disciples come back. And they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? Now, notice that first phrase, just then. At this very moment, and there's precise timing here that we don't want to miss. We want to see the sovereign plan of God, the sovereign design of God. Because if the disciples had come a moment sooner... They may have interrupted the conversation before Jesus announces to this woman who he is. If they come any later, they may miss the interaction altogether as the woman leaves and goes into the town. And so the, the timing is precise and intentional. But again, as we noted before, two weeks ago, the disciples reveal this common cultural prejudice. Uh, really, it's misogyny, legitimate misogyny 
against women. And uh, it was something that they had been conditioned by. And so they were shocked, not simply that Jesus was talking to a Samaritan of all people, hated by the Jews, but that he was talking, the text says, to a woman. How shocking, right? (laughs) It doesn't really shock us, but it shocked the disciples. Remember, women in this time commonly were treated as a lesser class of people, mostly uneducated, fewer rights than men. And as we mentioned two weeks ago, even some rabbis taught that it would be a waste of time to spend much time talking with a woman, even one's own wife. It's hard to imagine that perspective. In fact, they thought it would be immoral, immoral to teach a woman the scriptures. It wasn't all rabbis, but some rabbis. Well, Jesus didn't subscribe to that perspective. And I want to caution us here as we think about Jesus and we think about the movements and the religious persuasions of the world. You know, a lot of people want to claim Jesus that he would be part of their movement today. That Jesus would have been one of us because that's going to give some credibility, right, to your movement, to your perspective. But Jesus wasn't a socialist. Jesus wasn't a free market capitalist. Jesus isn't a Democrat or a Republican. Jesus was totally unique. He owed nothing to any political movement. He owed nothing to any cultural or social norm. He didn't care about being considered strange or odd in the way he interacted with people. He didn't consider it something to be avoided, to be considered inappropriate or even immoral by these faulty standards. Instead, wherever truth and righteousness and justice are, there's where Christ can be found. And he was there regardless of whether anyone stood with him. He came to be the light of the world, and that by very definition, to be the light coming into the darkness meant that he was going to be different from the darkness. There was going to be a contrast, and it would be notable. He didn't care if it seemed odd or foolish to be seen talking to this woman. Well, the disciples really didn't understand any of that. They weren't on the same page. In fact, they didn't know a whole lot about anything that Jesus was doing at this point. It's still early in the ministry. He's called them. They're participating with him in his ministry, but they have a lot to learn. And this is one of those lessons. So they don't know much about what Jesus is up to, but they know enough, look at the text, not to ask the questions that they're actually thinking. But we see what they're thinking. What do you seek? What do you want? And why on earth are you talking with this woman? Now, if they had been there for the conversation previously, they probably would have understood a little bit more about what Jesus was doing, a little bit more about the context. And they probably would have known the answer to their first question, what do you seek? What are you looking for here? They would have known that he was busy seeking and finding that which the Father is seeking for worshipers to worship him in spirit and in truth. But they see him seeking those people, those worshipers in unexpected places among unexpected people. So now the conversation is done. And how does the woman respond to Jesus' revelation about himself? You know this Messiah that's coming? I am that Messiah. What does she do? 
we see in the narrative as it unfolds and what she does, some marks of transformation, change that's taking place in this woman. First, in verse 28, notice what she does. She leaves her water jar. Now, we might be really quick to skip over that phrase. She left her water jar. Okay, yeah, she's running out. She's running back to the town to tell the people. But I think that's kind of really meaningful here. I think that's a pretty important, at least symbol for us to to see into her life, to see into her heart and see that something is actually changing here. She left her water jar And this is how we know that she's starting to get who Jesus is and what he's about. Remember before, when she's at the well, Jesus approaches her for a drink. She keeps asking question after question about physical, natural water. And when Jesus offers her her living water, what does she say? Sir, give me this water because as I think about it, I'm pretty discontent with the labor that's required coming to this well every day and carrying this heavy jar of water back to my village, back to my city. And so, yeah, it sounds kind of nice to not be thirsty anymore, to not need this water. Please give me that. And that's all she could think about was the daily menial physical tasks. But now she leaves her water jar completely and runs off without it. And then... Secondly, she tells people about who she met. This is how we know she's being changed by the Savior as well. The woman who had come to the well, isolated in her shame, now is boldly and publicly proclaiming her testimony, her story, to anyone who will listen. And she says, come see the man that I met. The emphasis here is on the identity of Christ. Because look at what she says about him. Come see this man that I met. He told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Well, who else could tell her all she ever did? This isn't, you know, she may come to some of the townspeople and said, this man told me all I ever did. And they're like, oh, well, everybody knows all you've ever did because uh, you kind of have a reputation around here as not being a very savory person, okay? But this is a foreigner. This is not some local who knows her story. And so it speaks of his omniscience, It speaks to the fact that he is God himself. Therefore, he is a unique and defining individual. Now, she presents this question, and that's curious, right? Christ has told her who he is, but now she goes to the townspeople, and she presents this question, can this be the Christ? Why is it in the form of a question? It could be that she wants them to make the decision for themselves. I mean, after all, she's inviting them to come see. Come see this man that I met. This is what he did. Could this be the Christ? Come see for yourself. That's possible. But it's also true in the language that there's some hesitation indicated. So she herself, while she has some measure of faith, she still needs a little bit more convincing. At least, though, there is some faith, right? Because she doesn't just sit there at the well asking more questions in skepticism, like, hmm, tell me more. I'm really not convinced. I need more proof, okay? She's running excitedly away from the well. She leaves her water jar, and she's going to tell people. And so there is a measure of faith. could be similar to the man who says to Christ, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Strengthen my faith. So, 
Jesus is omniscient. He shows his divine qualities. Even though he never met me, he knew me. Come see this man. He told me all that I ever did. Now, that phrase, he told me all that I ever did. I want us to park on that for a moment and consider that. How many, how many of us want someone to, to come up to us, to approach us in conversation and start telling us, start, start proclaiming and exposing everything we've ever done? I'm not talking about like, well, on January 17th uh, last year at 12.07 p.m., you made a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Okay? That's not the kind of information that's coming out. He's not telling her uh, random and meaningless details of her life. He's bringing up and exposing publicly her sin. We're talking about sin. How many of us want that to take place? How many of us want someone to bring up the fact that we lost our temper and perhaps verbally or emotionally abused a spouse or a child? You looked at those images on your phone. You broke your marriage covenant and betrayed the trust of your spouse. You keep lying to and cheating your employer. You hate your brother. Your Christianity is a facade because secretly in your heart, you love your sin too much to turn to Christ. You love the darkness rather than the light. Nobody wants their sins dredged up from the secrecy, the depths of their hearts where they think it's safe and hidden. Nobody wants their flaws and their failures exposed for someone else to see. But conviction of sin is what's necessary for us to see our need for a Savior. And that's exactly what Jesus did for this woman. Remember, in verses 17 and 18, the woman, when Jesus says, go get your husband, bring him here, she says, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, yes, that's correct, you're right in saying you have no husband because you've had five husbands and the man you're living with now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Ouch. Burn, right? That, that is not what you want someone to know about. These are not the types of things you post on your Instagram, okay? I just divorced my fifth husband, you know, living the, living the good life, okay? These are the things you hope nobody notices. They're painful and they're shameful, but... Here, instead of running away in shame, instead of being offended, how dare you mention that part of my life, she comes to him in faith. How is this possible? There's one explanation, and it's the explanation that Jesus started out with in 3, talking to Nicodemus about. There's a new life being given by the Spirit with a new heart to see sin the way God sees sin, and instead of running away in shame and hiding or being offended and angered, it turns to Christ in faith. Because the Spirit is the one who convicts of sin and then convinces of the sufficiency of Christ to save. He grants the repentance that leads to salvation, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7.10. Godly grief, sorrow over sin produces a repentance which leads to salvation without regret. But a worldly sorrow, a sorrow that recognizes the shame, a sorrow that hides it and buries it and doesn't know what to do with it, can't find a solution, only leads to death. The Spirit 
is producing in this woman a solution for her shame, a solution for her sin, that she would turn away from it and run to where the solution is found, forgiveness in this Messiah. The sin that was the sting of death is now gone. And instead of her sin being her reproach, it's now a part of her testimony, a part of a story of a wonderful Savior who removes sin. It's been drowned in the flood of mercy and grace. And now she can go to town and tell boldly, excitedly about this encounter with this unique person. So the people of the town are on their way, the Bible says. They went out of the town, verse 30, and they were coming to him. So the harvest is about to increase exponentially among the Samaritans. The disciples don't see what's happening yet, but Jesus is teaching them the broad scope of his mission, of his purpose. They could have known if they knew and understood this Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah in Isaiah. It says, it is too small a thing. This is the Father. This is God giving a prophecy about his Messiah through Isaiah It is too small a thing that you, Messiah, should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. That's not enough. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the very ends of the earth. This is the purpose of God for Messiah. And the disciples could have known that had they known and understood the scriptures. But Jesus is going to graciously continue teaching them. This is a global harvest. This is a harvest for God of worshipers from all nations, tribes, and tongues. Secondly, it is a spiritual harvest. Let's look at verses 31 through 34. Meanwhile, the disciples, so here's this this woman leaves her jar. She goes to town. She's telling the people, and now they're on their way, literally on their way, to the well to see Christ. In the meantime, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Now, this is familiar, right? We've seen this before. We've seen it with Nicodemus. We've seen it with the woman at the well. And now we see it again with the disciples. All they can focus on are immediate physical realities and needs. Food. We need food. They'd gone to town to buy food. Now they're coming back. And all they think that should be a priority for Jesus is that he eats a meal. Rabbi, eat. This is so important. Thankfully, the woman is gone. That could have been what they were thinking, right? I mean, whew, glad that was over. That's over. I hope nobody saw him talking to her. That could be embarrassing, awkward. Don't worry, teacher, we're here now. We have food for you. This is what really matters. Eat something. They couldn't have been more ignorant, right? He replies, I have food to eat that you don't know about. He's going to prove their ignorance. And again, they say, what? Did someone bring him something to eat? Where did he find this food? And of course, Jesus wasn't holding out on them. He didn't have a pouch of beef jerky or lamb jerky, you know, that he stashed away somewhere. (laughs) So we see this uncanny 
parallel to the woman at the well. Question after question, revealing their ignorance, revealing their lack of spiritual sight. All they can think of is the visible, the temporal. She needed illumination about what this water was that Jesus was talking about. They needed illumination about what this food was that Jesus was talking about. And Jesus, again, graciously gives it. They can't even imagine that there's a possibility, that there's something more important Jesus could be doing than worrying about a meal. Perhaps they could have benefited from Paul in 1 Corinthians 6.13. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. That was a common phrase, a common saying among the Gentiles. Well, our bodies are just made for pleasure. Our stomachs are just made to enjoy food. So eat away. That's the only purpose. And then he continues, but God will destroy both one and the other. God will destroy the food and the stomach, okay? There's something much more significant about your existence than the physical realities. There are more important things than keeping your stomach full. So what is then the food that Jesus is talking about? What is the food that's sustaining him even while he's physically tired and hungry. He says in verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. I don't want us to miss the significance of this statement. This is a mission statement. This is a purpose statement for the life of Christ. It's as if he's saying to his disciples, essentially, this is why I've come. This is why I'm here in this form. This is why I'm wearing this flesh and bones. To do the will of the Father. He knows his mission and he's laser focused on it. And nothing is going to deter him from it. It's a matter of getting everyone around him to be on the same page. To realize why he has come. Who he is and what he's doing. And it goes back to his childhood. Remember in Luke 2, his parents have come to Jerusalem with him, of course, for the feast of the Passover. And then they're on their way back. They're traveling out of Jerusalem, back to Nazareth. And where's Jesus? What? I thought you had him. Where'd where'd he go? And they go back and they find him in the temple with the teachers talking about the things of God. And his parents are distraught. and, And Mary says, why would you do this to us? And he's like, why were you looking for me? Didn't you know that I must be about my father's business, the King James says? That I must be in my father's house? Didn't you know? This is why I'm here. So we want to look briefly at the father's will and work, his purpose for Christ, Christ's mission, which if we go ahead to John 6, please turn there with me, John chapter 6. In John 6, we have a pretty clear insight into why Christ came, what his mission was. Let's start in verse 37. John 6, 37 through 40, we'll read that. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. Ready? This is the will of God for Christ, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me, but instead raise it up 
on the last day. I will guarantee their salvation and their resurrection. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is why Christ has come, to seek and to save the lost, right? To to gather in all that the Father gives him, to be the propitiation, to absorb the wrath of God for the sin of all who will come to him and believe. Skip ahead to John 6, 51. How is this going to happen? How, how can it be accomplished? He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for life of the world is my flesh. In other words, I will die so that many can live. I will give my own flesh. So, we understand that that is the mission of Christ, but how is doing that mission, how is doing the work and the will of God, his food? It's compared to food, which we know sustains our life. It nourishes our bodies. It gives us health and energy. How is this Christ's food? He said what we just read. He is the bread of life, and that's our food. We must partake in that if we are to have eternal life. But his reference to food is something else. It's something different here. He's saying that his very obedience to the Father's will is his food. This is his sustenance. This is what keeps him going. This is what's, what keeps him healthy and gives him energy in spite of physical hunger and thirst and weariness. Harkens back to Matthew 4, 4, where Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. And what is his answer? What is his response? He's hungry. He's been fasting, and the devil says to him, turn these stones into bread. Satisfy, satiate your physical hunger. And Jesus says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but instead by every word that comes from the mouth of God, and what comes from the mouth of God? The will of God. And so to live, to receive, to treasure the will of God is to be spiritually sustained, to receive the nourishment of that food. Carson says if in his dealings with the Samaritan woman, Jesus was performing his father's will, there was greater sustenance and satisfaction in that than in any food the disciples could offer him. Are the kingdom of God and his will worth suffering for? Are the kingdom of God and his will and this harvest of souls worth losing a meal for? Worth being inconvenienced for? Jesus believed so. And to accomplish the work God had for him, he would give his very life, his flesh, and say, it is finished. He would accomplish it completely. The cost was great, but the reward was greater. Remember Hebrews 12, 2? We look to Jesus. He is the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and now he's seated at the right hand of God. He is doing this with the end in mind, 
Though there's real cost, there's real suffering, there's real glory, and there's real joy on the other side. Glory, yes. Joy, yes. Sustained and satisfied life, yes. Why? Because God, the author of all the universe, the purpose and the joy of life, is seeking worshipers, and Jesus is purchasing them and winning them to God. James 4, 5, the value of the spirit that is in us, in man. Do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he, God, yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? This is the spirit he's after, the part of us that that makes us able to recognize the glory and the beauty of God and to praise that glory, to praise that beauty. That That is our sole purpose in life, and this is what God is doing. When we had left that purpose and gone our own way into idolatry, God is bringing us back. Christ says, this is my food. This is what truly satisfies. This is where purpose and joy and life are truly found. Because God is spirit and those who worship him must do it, do so in spirit and truth. Jesus said his kingdom is not of this world. It's not visible. It's not carnal. It's not temporal. It's not taken by force. It's spiritual. And the harvest that is being gathered into the kingdom is made up of people from all over the world who are being made alive in spirit to worship God. This is a spiritual harvest. Let's continue on then to point number three. It's also an imminent harvest. What is the timing of this harvest? The harvest is now. Verses 35 and 36, back in chapter 4. Do you not say, Jesus says, here's an example of a common phrase. Don't you say, there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are already white for harvest. Already, now, the one who reaps is receiving the wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. Now, not many of us are farmers. There are certainly some farmers in here. Some of us maybe grew up on farms and don't farm anymore, but most of us are pretty familiar with the reality, the natural principle that planting time and harvesting time come in different seasons, right? Unless you're two years old, you don't expect to plant something and get a crop the next day or five minutes later, okay? We understand that there's a growing season and then the crop will be ripe at some point, but there is a time period between the two, right? That's, that's a simple principle. We get it. And Jesus, of course, is talking to people in an agrarian society. They're also very familiar with this principle of harvesting and planting in different seasons. So then he uses the common saying, well, there's four months between planting and the harvest. So we just expect to wait until harvest time, until there's a reward. However, the harvest Jesus is teaching about here is a different kind of harvest. There is no waiting necessary here. There is no planting and then sitting watching watching the time go by until the harvest is ready. The harvest is ready now. He says, already, already, 
the harvest is being gathered in. Jesus is frequently found giving eschatological cues of the fulfillment of things that had been promised and prophesied. With his coming and his ministry, prophecies are being fulfilled. And so he often says things like, the hour is coming. We saw him do that in the previous, in, in verse 23 with the woman at the well. The hour is coming and is now here. We see the initiation, the beginning of a new economy in God's kingdom, in God's redemptive history. The time is now here where harvesting and planting happens together at the same time. This is the fulfillment of the prophecy in Amos 9.13. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with it. The, the plowman will overtake the harvester. You know that plowing and planting and then the growing season and the harvest, those are, those are very separated, right? Those are, those are different events in different times. But now the plowman's going to overtake the harvester and the person who's treading grapes is going to overtake the one who's planting. Where'd you get those grapes? I'm planting. The harvest isn't ready. This is atypical. It's not natural. It's supernatural. It's divine work, and it's the provision of God to reveal that his salvation is here, and the harvest is ready to be brought in. Simultaneous planting and harvesting together. In a moment, the seed of the gospel is planted, and the Spirit is at work removing the blindness and the deadness of sin, calling sinners to himself, breathing into a person the new life of Christ, and a soul is harvested. Look around you. Lift up your eyes. The harvest is ready. He goes on, though, and we come to point number four. This is a collaborative harvest. There are multiple workers involved in this harvest. In this account, Jesus has sown and reaped the harvest of the Samaritan woman, and now the Samaritan woman is going out to the townspeople, and she is literally going to town, planting seeds, pun intended. And while sower and harvester are working and rejoicing together, they are often still two distinguished individuals doing different work. And we understand that from our experience. And I want to compel us not to be discouraged by that because often we find ourselves being the sower. We are the planter and we don't see the harvest. We don't see the fruit that's going to come from the seed that's planted, but that shouldn't dissuade us or discourage us from continuing to plant the seed of the gospel, trusting that God is going to bring about the harvest. Nevertheless, Jesus says the saying holds true in verses 37 and 38. The saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. So, this four at the beginning of verse 37, four usually means, well, look back to the verse prior because this is going to explain something about it. Therefore, because of what was just said, this. In this case, however, it's actually pointing forward to verse 38. It's a summary of verse 38. This is the true principle. This is the true saying, one sows and another reaps. 
So in this instant, there is one who plants, and then there is a different person who harvests. So in the immediate situation, what Jesus is saying here, the Samaritans of Sikar are on their way, okay? Here comes the harvest. They have done, by the way, the disciples have done no labor for this harvest, right? They have been totally out to lunch, also pun intended, but are graciously included with the ministry of Christ, and they get to participate in his reconciliation of sinners to God. But they've done no work for this harvest. They've done no planting. They've done no cultivating, but they're going to see and realize a harvest. It also means in general, as he talks, especially in verse 38, this is going to be your way of life. This is your mission as disciples, as followers of mine, that you will go out into the fields of the harvest and you will enter into the labor of those who have gone before you. For example, those who have labored before, the faithful of Israel, the prophets, the latest of which was John the Baptist, who we know had gone up north, likely into this area already, proclaiming the God who saves. And now the disciples are called, and they get to enter into this labor of others who have gone before them and have planted seeds, and they get to reap a harvest for which they have done no work. And that is a privilege. So the Savior has come, and co-laborers get to rejoice in the fruit of the harvest together. Number five, the fifth characteristic of this harvest, it is a joyful harvest. And I really want to emphasize, I want you to see the joy of this harvesting. Is there anything better than seeing someone come to Christ? Is there anything more joyful that touches your soul at a deeper level than seeing someone truly come to Christ to be delivered from the darkness. We can think of all kinds of <clears throat> extremely joyful situations and events in our lives. We think about marriages. What a beautiful thing when a couple loves one another, especially when they know the Lord and they recognize the purpose and the value of marriage to display the gospel and make a covenant with one another, exemplifying, illustrating the gospel. When the birth of a child takes place, especially a first child. You've never, never known what it's like to experience parenthood or the birth of your own child. It's a joyful event. But all those things that we can think of that we find great joy in and we cherish, they pale in comparison to when an image bearer of God who has gone astray, has marred and 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 dirtied the image of God in their being with sin. They're lying about God. They're going their own way to their own destruction. When they are raised from death to life, when they are brought out of the darkness to walk in marvelous light, in fellowship with their creator, what could be better? I love hearing the testimonies of people who have experienced conversion, who know what it's like to walk in darkness, the emptiness, the hopelessness, without God and without hope in the world, and then they come to know Christ. The blinders are removed. There's an affection and a sensitivity toward God and the things of God 
And they love him, and it shows. The sinner is forgiven, the criminal is pardoned, the blind is given sight, the enemy becomes a friend, the orphan is adopted by the loving father, the lost is found, the prodigal is welcomed home with open arms. Luke 15, if you would turn there, gives us a great description. Jesus is teaching about the joy of the harvest, the joy of bringing people into the kingdom, the joy of seeing people reconciled with their God. Luke 15, three parables. First of all, the lost sheep in verses 4 through 7. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Then the parable of the lost coin in verses 8 through 10. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. Just so, I tell you, in the same way there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And finally, this beloved story of the prodigal son. In verses just 20 through 24, the response of the father when he comes home. The son arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is now found. And they began to celebrate. The salvation of sinners is a reason of all reasons, of any reason, to celebrate. Every person who comes to Jesus and believes in him marks a decisive and irreversible, irreversible victory over the darkness. A new worshiper of God is formed. That is something that should be cherished and pursued by us at whatever cost. But perhaps we think there is a cost too great. What if laboring in the harvest of souls means that we have to go hungry? We have to give up a meal. We have to let go of some of the comforts and securities that we've built for ourselves in this life. What if it means going to the people you don't like? The people you don't think deserve the mercy of God. The people who maybe by religious persuasion or otherwise, hate and kill Christians. 
self-proclaimed, vehement atheists, perhaps people you may see as the ones who are ruining our country, criminals, outcasts, the people that if you were seen with, you would risk your reputation. What about those people? Like the disciples who wondered why Jesus was talking to that woman and instead brought Jesus food and urged him to eat. This is more important. What food would we bring to Jesus and say, this is more urgent, this is more important than harvesting worshipers into your kingdom? We know that salvation is God's work. The Spirit gives life. The flesh is no help at all. But we are brought into the labor of the harvest. He works through us to call people to himself. Let us say with Charles Spurgeon, even though we trust in the sovereignty of God for salvation, that if sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. We have been commissioned into the harvest. Yes, there is labor involved. There is cost involved. There is sacrifice. But the work of the harvest is life-sustaining food. It is eternally important. The wages and the fruit of the harvest are invaluable. And no one who seeks to be faithful in that harvest will ever waste their life. Psalm 126, 5 and 6, those who sow, who plant in tears, knowing the cost, shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Some plant, some water, but as we see, God produces the fruit, and as God gives the increase, we all rejoice together. I wonder sometimes if the evangelistic pendulum has swung too far in the other direction. Just, just consider with me. This is an unfinished thought, but something worth considering. If, if the evangelistic pendulum has swung too far in the other direction from, which is a good thing that we've left manipulation and, and tactics, cheap tactics, and an incomplete, irresponsible gospel that just says, here, pray this prayer and you'll go to heaven. The end. Tactics and, and pressure and guilt that say, when you come to church next week, I better hear that you've won a number of souls to Christ in the double digits. Well, where are those people? If you won 34 people to Christ last week, where are they? The command to us in the Great Commission is to make disciples, to teach them all that Christ has commanded. Where are they? Is that happening? Or are they false converts? So to run away from those tactics, that manipulation, that's a good thing. But I wonder if we've gone maybe too far in the other direction where we're just 
comfortable, maybe shamefully apathetic. We're not really pursuing anyone with the gospel. This is the commission. This is the mission of God for all disciples. It's not optional. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. We need to consider our place in the fields of the harvest. And trust me, I don't want to just compel you by guilt. None of us, that's not a good reason. It's not a healthy reason. It's not a sustaining reason to just say, oh, this is my duty. This is by guilt. I know someone's going to make me feel bad if I don't do this. Look at the woman. This, this is who she is. This is who we are. Have you met Christ? Don't you want people to know your Christ, your Savior? Will we joyfully leave our water jar, go out into the town, and invite people to come and see the one I've met? Come and see the Savior. Let's pray. Father, you're so gracious and merciful to us. You are at work all the time by your Spirit, doing the things that are better, that are greater than what we would even ask or hope for. And we thank you for your sufficient wisdom and your power that gives us what we need, that continues to convince us of the worth of Christ and the gospel and your kingdom that puts us to work, that gives us the privilege of being your servants, to be able to participate in the harvest, to be able to sow the seed of the good news of Christ, and to see people being gathered in to eternal life. God, I pray that where necessary, we would grow in our hunger and our thirst for this joy, for this food of doing your will and your work. That we would be so compelled by the joy that we know in Christ that we would go gladly, excitedly, willingly, hurriedly to share that with our neighbors. God, please enlist us, empower us, renew our minds, equip us, to be part of this wonderful work of harvesting. We know that your glory, your greatness is worth it. We pray that you would continue through us, redeeming sinners to yourself, for your great name's sake, and our joy. In Jesus' name.